Club. I'm sorry, Henrik, my dear co-host. I'm not making this podcast any easy to you. Well, that has been kind of the ongoing theme. Yeah, we're we're two Finnish gentlemen in agony tonight. We travel around the world via films. For a large part, we analyze worldwide cinema here, but we do delve into all kinds of films from any genre and country. We're basically location blind here. But it needs to be said that I'm Finnish. Are you Turkish? I I guess at the end of this podcast's run, most likely, yep. Yeah, well, location blind. I studied media, Henrik studies media. That's why we are extremely informative for your listening pleasure. Or at least we have these mandates and diplomas, as said previously. We have the official qualification to talk about film. I don't know if that actually matters anything, or if there is any real merit behind it, but, you know, we do have the papers. We do. It indeed is, though, (laughs) an entirely different thing. If you know something, and whether you have a diploma on something, doesn't really equal much at all. But that's what we like as humans. We like to collect diplomas to feel good about ourselves. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know how much it is about feeling good about yourself and how much it is about how this society itself has built around the individual throughout the ages. Because you kind of actually do have to have some kind of a official paper about everything th- these days. You need to have the official qualification that you know to <coughs> e- even to wash your hands after leaving the toilet. You have a diploma on washing your hands after the toilet. It's it's the hygiene passport, <laughs> which which is which is basically demanded of you in anything that has anything to do with cooking. Yeah, that's a very important diploma, though. Even working at the bar, you have to have a hygiene passport these days. Yeah, no arguments against that. Why did we choose this film? Well. I think it was me. Well, it is a respected and award-winning film from Taiwan. The subject matter interested me. Also, the striking visuals that you see in the screenshots, they did intrigue me. And it wasn't festivals, for God's sake, so obviously must be a good movie. Right? Right? So, yeah, so so, so the high-paying IT job, Gary was interested to see what the poor people look like. That is correct, sir. Sometimes you gotta see the other end of the arena. I, 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 can, I can feel your pain, seeing how, you know, you can't simply go to a zoo and see the poor people in cages. Yeah, well. So, since we're looking at the Taiwanese film, let's go over Taiwan real quick. So, Taiwan is the other China. Uh, the China which believes that it's all of China. Just like the other China, that we mostly, most of the time, think as China, believes it is the one and only China. So, let me unpack that a little bit. We, of course, have the People's Republic of China. Then we have Taiwan, whose official name is Republic of China, actually. 
And since 1949, Taiwan or Republic of China, they have had their own government. It used to be a dictatorship, but became a multi-party democratic government. And we have to go way back in time to understand the whole what the hell Taiwan is about. So in 1912, in the Qing dynasty, when it fell, it ended 2000 years of imperial rule, Henrik. This is when the Republic of China was founded. And then China had a bloody civil war against communists. The communists were able to overthrow the Republic of China, or for short, the ROC government. And uh, hereafter, China the China that we know as China, became the People's Republic of China. So we have ROC, kind of the original China, and then the, the communist China. And this happened in 1949. And so the overthrown government, the ROC, then fled the mainland to Taiwan and made Taipei its new, new capital. International feelings towards ROC changed in the years to come, and in 1971, the ROC lost its UN membership to the PRC, which became the kind of, in the eyes of the UN, the de facto only existing entity of China. And the way PRC sees it, there is only one China to which Taiwan belongs. Well, if you ask from Taiwanese government, then Taiwan is a province of the China, and the Taiwanese claim the entire mainland of China in their constitution, as well as Taiwan. So the ROC and PRC do not agree who is the official government in Taiwan. And the president of Taiwan, Chai Ing-wen, has for example said that they will never accept a, a one country, two systems type of deal which Hong Kong is living in. And the Taiwanese population have the same sentiments that they don't want this kind of a system. And so... So ROC operates like an independent nation. Uh, the reason why the ROC or Taiwan has not claimed independence officially a long time ago is that the PRC still opposes to that very strongly, as they believe that Taiwan is an inseparable part of China's territory since antiquity. And the PRC has threatened to integrate ROC to PRC by force, should any independence claims ever take place. So it's really confusing. Both parties claim the same area, and the other one says that they are in control of the area that they occupy, and vice versa. So far from simple, but that's the story of Taiwan in a nutshell. Is kind of a, the point where these occupational policies usually get you in the end. Yep, what a region. Without reading, you, you simply cannot understand. Let's say the... The Chinese territory and the places that China claims to be its territory. There are times when, you know, simply living in Finland feels <laughs> kind of extremely easy. I know, I know. Like sitting back in Finland and drinking your soy drink and putting on the television, watching the news and hearing that this and that country in Europe or this and that country in Asia do not agree about something and... We just look from afar, like, what the hell are these people doing? <laughs> Finland has a lot of history actually supporting it. After the war, there has really not been any great push from any nation to grab and hold Finland. Yep. Henrik, I take it that you haven't seen this film before. No, I haven't. I 
Well, I, I guess since we are already in the topic, I, I might as well come clean at, at the beginning of this episode. I, myself, I don't know the director, I don't know the writers, and I don't know the actors. Basically, the only face that is familiar to me is Kuei Mei Young, who I have seen in Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, and Double Vision. But, you know, outside of her, complete strangers to me, the entire production through and throughout. Yeah. Or... Young Mei, I guess is the order you say this name in the native lands. It, yeah, it kind of depends for some some odd reason in West we kind of put the last word to the forefront. I don't know exactly why that is. And so, no experience with the director as well, either. None whatsoever. Yeah. Well, this appears to be one of the most respected directors coming from Taiwan. So it's about time we get to take a look at this mastermind right here. I have also understood that that the director Ming Liang Chai is someone who is well known in the cinema festival circles. But once again he is someone who, as far as I know, hasn't been transported into home media to Buy it yourself DVD and Blu-rays outside of, you know, the prints that are made out of the festival films or these smaller outdoor artistic production runs. Uh, one of the films that I've been interested in seeing for a while now is The Hole from the director, which just might be his most well-known work. But let's check out the actors then. So we do have... Li Kang Sheng playing the father, known also for other films by Chiming Lian called What Time Is It There from 2001. This one is about a clock shop owner who falls in love with a Parisian woman and changes all the clocks in his shop to show the Parisian time. Has also acted in a couple of, of films directed by Li Kang Sheng. Have you seen movies by Li Kang Sheng? I can't say I have. Yeah, see, it's good to have these international episodes. We get a, we now are getting to know all of these great people. And then Young Kuei Mei mentioned prior. She played the woman downstairs in Chiming Lian's The Hole from 98. And indeed, The Hole is about a hole between two apartments and the two neighbors make a special connection via said hole. Holy hole. Then we have the writers. There's a couple of them. I believe the main writer for this film is Song Pan Fei. He wrote and directed also Underground Fragrance from 2015 and The Taste of Rice Flower 2017. I will take that Pan Fei was the main writer of the project because then there is Chiming Lian, who is the director, who probably did a little bit of nice touches, who knows. And then there is Tung Chen Yu. He has his only writing credits in Stray Dogs and Taipei Factory 2 from 2014 and that's about it. Director, well, Chiming Lian, seen as order type of director, much like Orson Welles and Alfred Hitchcock and the like. Go ahead if you can name some, name drop some author level directors. Well, I guess from authors, the most prominent or well-known, easiest to name drop would be the French New Wave directors like Godard. There you go. Well, Chiming Lian is seen as one of the most respected directors, as said, from Taiwan and 
not for nothing he has after all won a lot of international recognition with his body of work he's known for once again the whole and what time is it there and we didn't mention yet goodbye dragon inn from 2003 there's journey to the west from 2014 there is something common with all of these films so henrik would you ever guess what that something would be yes these are all excruciatingly slow yeah that is something that i also i've understood is kind of a prominent to his style i would almost make the case that what he's attempting to do he is somehow trying to tie together the, the same philosophy and filmmaking makes Zen movies, if that makes any sense. Yeah, other term that I saw for this type of filmmaking was laissez-faire film, meaning that the director has basically free reign to decide how the end result is going to be in the sense that it can have very unorthodox methods of putting it together. But I don't know if this type of filmmaking is anymore really that unorthodox, because... It has become kind of mainstream. I don't know about that. I mean, usually film productions, especially in mainstream cinema, tend to be extremely controlled in a way that, for example, even the director don't have the ultimate free reign. It is a combination work between the director and the producers and the actors who are allowed to make whatever they want with the material they have been given some points, even the goddamn sound designer, or the guy in charge of the soundtrack, gets to state his point in the film production process through the work that he creates. Yep, and then we have cinematographer Liao Penjung. He's a frequent collaborator with Tsai Ming, Li Kangsheng, and Song Penfei. Collaborations with all the people already mentioned previously here. Small circles, I see. These kind of a smaller, more artistic film circles usually tend to be extremely small. It is a few producers who somehow find a unity in their work and this way can actually do repeated collaboration. Usually it ties down in that, that you manufacture this, this small unit with which you can actually work very well. That becomes your go-to crew with which you usually make all of your films. Music. There's a lot of music to be listened to here. What's your favorite track from this film? I would say it is that one singing part. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah, there's no music credits for the fact that the film has no music whatsoever. Instead of music, this is a film that uses the location sound to create the soundscape, which in itself is something that you don't see every time. I give it that much. Scene by scene, ladies and gentlemen, in apparently a record time in this podcast. I mean, showing that we've been recording about 19 minutes, so good for us. Well, good for our listeners, who have come out and said that our episodes takes too goddamn long. <laughs> You're entitled to your opinion. Well, the first shot lasts about three minutes already. Yeah, and, and that is running theme of the film. If anyone is actually wondering how the scene by scene this time is going to be so fast and so quickly over, it is because 
the film in itself is structured as such that it is a number of shots. It's not even that many shots. This is a movie that lasts two hours and ten minutes in total. And in that time you actually have surprisingly few shots. But what you have is shots that take their time. They do. So the kid sleeping while the woman is combing her hair. Uh, it's about 3 minutes 15 seconds. It's a flash forward of the lady taking care of the kids at the mold house. And that's the only flash forward or anything such in this film. The rest is going to go chronologically. Or that's most definitely how I read this first shot. Yeah, there, there is two ways to read the first shot. Like, this could be the very beginning of the sequence of events that play out in the film. Or this could be the very ending of the film. It comes down to, do you read it as such that the woman already knows the man and the kids? Is she their mother? And is this showing that moment in time when when she originally leaves the family and then no. returns back to it at the ending of the film or no, do you read it as such that like you said this is the moment where they or that the film starts with showing you the final end result now that you mentioned it maybe that could be a possible interpretation that this is indeed the mother but you look at the supermarket scene and i get the vibe that the little girl and the the store lady this woman doesn't know this girl yet but then she starts to frequent the supermarket and the lady pays attention and they kind of build this bond you can get that feeling from those scenes the bond between the woman and the daughter is something that is not shown to be that great at the beginning of the film when those supermarket sequences start and therefore it looks like it is something that like you said it builds up in the course of time but at the same time in some scenes the woman seems to operate under a knowledge and under an image which she wouldn't have been able to actually get Unless she somehow would have known the family. Like, for example, in the very end of the film. Yeah. When when she simply finds the place where the family is staying at that time. Well, I don't know if she followed some of the kids or what was the case there. But she indeed does find the hideout or the place where they stay. And there is the fact that in the... Second last shot of the of the film that that shot that yes lasts about nine minutes. Yep. Yep. In that shot you have the moment where the father leans his head on the woman and you could take it that okay the man was drunk and was hoping maybe to get this unit together in that state of mind, but I suppose your family theory is the best one to go with here. I, I don't know if, if it's the best. It is simply an alternative theory. Because as it may come excruciatingly obvious throughout this episode, this is a film that really does not establish anything. It doesn't really explain anything to you. 
There are characters in the story and th there is a sequence of events that happened one after the other. But you are never actually given that much information between the sequences or even during those sequences. You are kind of shown these clips from this timeline that evolves throughout the film. But you are not actually told what has happened, what happens and not even when does this sequence happen. Yeah, many things to consider. Then there is the kids walking in a forest past a tree. Also, this lasts about three minutes again. Well, the actual point of this shot is kind of unknown because this doesn't really give me anything. How about you? My reading was that this was the film kind of showing you... It was introducing the kids, but beyond that, I don't know. I, I kind of took it that it was introducing the kids and therefore the family before the time at which the film itself takes place. This is them... At some point before the family reaches the city, which is the kind of the main point that you follow through the film. Yeah, yeah, that's how I took it as well. It's before getting to the city, however valuable this then might be. But uh, then the father is trying to get the boat going. Okay, so the boat established. This will be used later. Here it's not really used for anything except it might be his means to get to work. Or do something really because you because even the goddamn boat isn't being established that well in the film. You are never actually told whose boat it is, what does that person use the boat for. It comes a plot point at the third act where the dad tries to use the boat to do something. You are never actually told what, but something is going on with the boat. He is trying to take the kids with the boat. To some place for some reason. Oh yeah, oh boy. We will get to that when that happens. Yep. There is uh, the children peeking into the water passage. Once again, I don't know why. Maybe this just doesn't have a particular point. It, it could be kind of trying to symbolize the light yeah. at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, that just crossed my mind as well. That could be trying to give you the... Impression of a knowledge about what happens at the end. Like at the end of the film, they kind of reach that light in some sense because the unit becomes more whole, maybe. Yeah, and then the father and colleague are holding the sign in the Taipei traffic with harsh weather conditions. Kind of shows well the anguish, frustration, anger, pain of this job and the disrespect of a human being basically thrown into this kind of a role with minimal pay and doing some kind of a job that somebody would be doing a better job at. Like, for example, a wall. Oh, I don't know. Pretty much, yeah. The dad's job is simply to hold up a sign at the, some kind of an intersection. That really is one of the most meaningless jobs that you can have. And that is something that is pointed out in these scenes because while the dad has to hold up a physical sign which has the marketing message in it, you are repeatedly shown these cars that have similar advertisements printed on their sides. Meaning that the dad's job is something that you could simply do by having your advertisement on the side of a bus. It really looks like that, that that this scene was shot in such a way that the director said, Okay, here's two signs, here's two guys, please go in the middle of this 
highway and give these signs up for like eight hours. I will leave you there and there is my camera which will take care of the resting. Goodbye. I'll be munching some burritos and having my coffee while you hold the signs in this shitty weather condition so we get the authentic situation to the film. And this is something that is kind of a running theme in the way how this movie has been made and has been filmed. Because this isn't the only time when this kind of a scene takes place. And even in the scenes that have more going on in them, in a form of character movement and dialogue, even in those scenes you get the sense that the direction that has been given to the actors has been extremely minimal. They have been given the dialogue and some guidance on how to express the dialogue. Or they have been given a direction that in this scene you walk from this end of the frame to this end of the frame. You walk from left to the right. The impression that I got watching this film is that that is kind of the only direction that they are being given. Possibly, but when I look at these child actors, for example, I don't, of course, uh, speak Mandarin or any of the regional languages there, but they seem to be pretty doing a very natural job. Here, so good job and then, then there is the beach scene with the kids and a third person that I will just guess is the father because looks like the father but it's not really shown because it's taken from from this wide shot and looks like the point here is to show the children well, albeit poor can still be able to enjoy their childhood even with a muddy afternoon walk whereas the father is smoking and stuck in his thoughts feeling again anguish of trying to feed his family with limited resources. That's what I think is kind of building up right there in his brain as we get the background for that later on. Then the girl is sitting alone in an eatery, cafeteria, restaurant without food. Looks like she wishes to have some of the noodles of the customer and kind of the lack of monetary means is pushed once again. And that's what this film keeps doing like for the first hour without anything else driving the narrative forward. So as far as I'm concerned the first act is about an hour long and then the first act ends finally when we get to this moment where in the supermarket the store lady confronts the girl once again and then washes her hair. This is the first moment when something plot some some kind of a plot device is introduced as far as I see it. So there are the guys with their signs again juxtaposition vis-a-vis the kids in their concurrent activities doing absolutely random tasks. Random task, wait, that was some kind of a funny name for an odd job, right? Was it in the Austin Powers films? Yes. Yeah. So then father is watching the water streaming in the muddy shore. He doesn't really care to be at home with his kids at this moment or maybe any other moment. The kids are... uh, baggage to him. That's how I read it after seeing the film. What about you? I don't know. I I got the impression that he did care for the kids, but at the same time he was kind of a hold back from showing that by the depression that he had also this feeling of being kept down by the society and by his situation in the society. Yeah, could be in any way you want to look at it. And then we get to the supermarket. A lady is helping the girl to pick up the produce. 
Kind of interestingly, Henrik, there, there's about three different credits for different woman named characters in this film. So this made me look at the scenes again and see if there's a different lady in some of the shots. But it seems that the character that we're concerned about here is the, is the store lady and she appears to be through and through in this film and nobody else. You know, us Westerners have, have sometimes trouble of matching this Asian face with another Asian face. At least this happens to me. Uh, I've heard that that's quite common. And that, that is something that basically happens to every demographic. Like I, I've heard that you know, the Westerners all look the same for Asian. Yeah. Guys with their signs again, wind is getting unbearably strong. And you have to wonder if there was just a crazy wind machine right in front of them, or if this is actually the conditions that they were left at for eight hours. I'm going to go with that theory, that they were there for extended period of time in excruciating pain. But yeah, we get it, we get it. It really looks like they were left there, and we keep returning to this shot, of course, to get this impact of how boring it is, and really how boring is it is for the audience as well at points. The boy steals toilet paper from the supermarket toilet. Practical everyday hardships, once again. On one end, I really like some of this, and I really get why they would want to keep this shot going on for 150 years, because it gives you the adequate amount of time to understand how boring these situations are, how frustrating they are, how poor they are, and how much effort you have to make for all the daily activities to keep yourself alive. Well, here the kids are in the supermarket again, now taking all the possible sample foods from these ladies that they can get their hands on. So yeah, I, I could see some <laughs> some similarities from my student years at points. So I can relate to this. Of course, we're talking about the subject matter that is completely on a different level than Finnish students. So not to disrespect that in any way. Yeah, but some similarities still does kind of abide in both situations. Yeah, and the father gets tired of holding the sign and leaves. It looked like he is quitting his job at this moment, but he just takes a break. We return for the song with the sign uh, later. Father takes a pee in the in a bed of reeds or something like that, and we are introduced to the visible reproductive machinery. I suppose this is like probably the first time that I see a scene like this where you are where you forgot that you're filming from the wrong side of the guy. But they do, and he smokes in the ugliest muddy backyard possible to ever find for this film. This is a long, long smoking session. I wonder how many cigarettes were used to complete this scene. I guess it depends on how many camera crews they had. Because the scene does use cutting in order to kind of forward it and to make, make certain that the cuts between different takes are ain't too obvious. If you simply decide to use cutting and use the different camera locations on your advantage, you could actually make that scene with two or three cigarettes. <laughs> and the sign with the song. He first goes through the lyrics in their entirety when he's holding the sign, then sings the entire thing and gets kinda lacrimose. I'd like to know the proper significance of this song. Unfortunately, we do not have an expert to 
tell us the story of the song if there is one. But it goes like this. In anger my hair stands on end and as the rain stops I launch a shrill cry at the heavens. My valiant heart loses hope. My exploits are naught but mud and dust and my wanderings but a cloud under the moon. Regret may turn, my still young head grey. Oh, vainglorious pain. The shame of defeat is not yet washed away. When will the grief of the empire subject end? May our chariots of war be launched at the borders. May the soldiers wallow in the flesh of the barbarians. May they quench their thirst on the blood of Xiongnu. When our peaks and rivers are conquered once more, the emperor will receive our homage. So this mentioned is Xiongnu. It's a tribe of nomadic peoples who inhabited the modern-day Mongolia, Henrik from 3rd century BC to the late 1st century AD. Possible meaning in the film is unknown to me, but that's what it is. But basically, you know, this song is some kind of a, I would say, I would guess, I would interpret it being kind of a, the regular Joe's cry for better life in the society. I would take it also as such. Yeah. Maybe also some kind of attempt to remember some types of roots or, you know, spoke out that you would have those roots in order to strengthen the bond you might have with them in an emotional sense. Mm. There's an, uh, I don't know if exciting is the word to use, the shot of the store lady checking the dates of products or something like this. Then talks via walkie-talkie that some old food should be thrown away. Washes hands and... Very exciting. Takes a long time. Well, that scene does kind of drive you the parallel between the family who really has to struggle in order to get food, who don't have food, and then this overabundance of food. Food that you can simply throw away because no one has taken that food. Yeah. That it kind of does, even though we see that the store lady is far from affluent at all, she actually seems to be barely surviving in a moldy house, no less. But she's doing better than the father's side. I don't know what is the store lady's situation, because like you pointed out, at the end of the film she is presented living in this moldy house, and in that sense kind of living like the family is living living in an apartment that is unfit for anyone else, apartment that has been abandoned because nobody wants it. But when you look at the lady herself, she threw her clothes and cleanliness of her hair and stuff like that, she kind of gives you the impression that she is not that badly off. She would be still making a needed paycheck to actually support some kind of a living, unlike the father whose job is to hold a sign at the street crossing. Yeah, seeing the situation how it is, it's surprising that if this character is indeed the mother and she seems to allow for the kids to spend a lot of time with the father who is not only in a terrible job but is kind of a mess as well. So, in that sense, you could also maybe go with the theory that this is just some random store lady who just has a big heart and steals the gates of another person. Yeah, you can you can kind of see it also that way. Once again, like pointed out, the movie really does not establish anything. 
and does not give you really that much information in and between the different scenes. Yeah, this following scene is kind of interesting in the sense that somehow the family seems to get their hands on the overthrown food. So would this be actually coming from the lady? Uh, or because in the previous scene the lady did say that, oh, we have some producer that needs to be thrown away. But maybe these are not linked, but... At first I made this connection that perhaps the lady is involved. It could be, or then, you know, that would be something that the father can provide through his paycheck. Oh, because, well, yeah, maybe, maybe. I, I mean, it, it most definitely is going to be a lousy paycheck, but no one's going to do that kind of a job for free. So he's getting paid, and that money has to go to some place. Because it most definitely is not going into a bank account for savings in order to be at some point able to buy their own house. Yeah, the film does establish at least that the lady delivers food to the stray dogs. The real, actual stray dogs of this film. Even though the title seems to make the reference that the stray dogs are the father and the family as well as the actual stray dogs. That's my interpretation anyway, because... Well, you can read whatever you want. This, however, puts the family in a similar level with the stray dogs, in a way. And discussion about the bought cabbage, which is the little girl's doll now. But we get to that later. Now they are washing up in some abandoned-looking public toilet. And yes, that's indeed what you would do if you don't have your own toilet. And maybe this is the most powerful shot of this film. Because it's the whole family together, how it affects the entire family, how they go on about it. And, you know, you can just feel the the shame and the what the situation is very strongly. After which they change the clothes at home and go to sleep. Now the store lady is shown to deliver food for the stray dogs. Someone has already fed them, it seems. And she climbs up the stairs of this abandoned building. And the boy wakes up the father to go to pee. And at 55.46 of this film, we get the scene where the lady stares at the mural for about half an hour, finishing the scene perhaps appropriately by peeing on the floor. Or, or do, doing something. Yeah, seems to be peeing and or, or doing something. Probably raising the moisture of whatever she's doing there to the plastic that she's covered with. Just saying. And also leaving her pee on the floor without giving any warning to everyone else. Yep. And the scene finally ends. Then we get to f at 59.12 where the father is eating the chicken very thoroughly. Leaving absolutely nothing behind but the bones. Literally behind Hendrik. He throws them behind and we stare at this lunch break for Five and a half minutes. This film is really starting to push it. We are almost at the midway point of this film at this point. And absolutely nothing has happened. The, there, has, the, there has been things that have happened. And something has been established which will come into play at the very end of the movie. In some form. Like the boat and like the mural which is something that to which they actually do return. At, in the third act. I guess I will say it already that this is a interesting story to be told, to be sure. But 
the way how much time we spend on these scenes, uh, definitely there are scenes where I understand why it's so drawn out, and this is why it works. But repeating this over and over doesn't seem to work too well. I could imagine that this film could be doing extremely well if you would condense it massively. But I will get to that in the review part of this podcast. Store Lady finds the girl in the store once again, now turns back to face her and takes her to wash her hair. So now something actually happens, be it as minimal as it is, but this kind of puts the store lady in contact with the f- uh, the, f- the group father. In any case, she's real nice for hel- helping the young girl. After which the father finally draws on the ground the message, I'm done with my sign, signed Wang. Father finally quits his job. It's kind of the incipient stages of family destruction in the making. Because now the guy has no income. Followed by, I have no idea what the hell is going on in this freezer, but they are shaking together in the freezer, the lady and the girl. That also is kind of an old scene, I must tell you. Is it a training to how to pee? Because I must tell you, this lady is an expert on that. <laughs> this is how you put your legs before you do it. Okay, good. But don't do it here. I don't know, maybe this is kind of a to be the bonding moment between the lady and the little girl. Maybe. Which would be a major point in the film, especially if you read the film as such that the lady and the girl don't know each other before the film starts. And the first shot would be kind of the end shot of the film. Perhaps we are once again losing something culturally here. We first of all know that the director likes to put a lot of humor in into his films. And some have online said that this film is thoroughly lacking all kinds of humor. But I don't know, then, then again staring at the mural for like five minutes and then being on the ground. I don't know how funny that is, but in, in a sense it's kind of absurdly funny-ish. So if that was supposed to be funny, that's there. We're turning into Eddie Murphy style of humor in this type of film. But uh, the father carries the sign to the hay, probably the place where he peed. I don't know what's going on with this pee in this film. And then the kids play the Mrs. Big Boobs cabbage game. Now this is the only light-hearted or somewhat happy scene in the entire film. Apart from the muddy beach scene, perhaps, where the kids play around. So the kids are the only... Like happy moments. Store woman climbs the tree. Again, not entirely sure what the hell she's doing, but I guess she just found the family's hideout. Or she already knew where it was, if she is the mother, as previously stated. Father is looking at the kids while they sleep, kind of foreshadowing the father abandoning them, in my opinion. It's kind of all building to that point, where I see it as such that the father decides to abandon his kids. I don't know if he abandons them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even, even worse, actually, than abandoning. And I will get to that, too, with pleasure in a moment. But now, most importantly, father is again carrying the sign around. I don't know what, why, but I thought he quit already. I, I, I took it as such that he changed his mind. Like, he, he wanted to quit, and he tried to do it in that moment. But then he also realized the same thing that you pointed out, that if he quits, the family does not have any income at all. So he was forced to once again pick up the sign 
and keep his job. And then, well, it's not the office of his work or anything, but it's some kind of an abandoned, expensive-looking apartment building, and he's able to get in. It is some kind of a vacant apartment building. Yeah. And a building into, for some reason, the family does not actually transfer themselves in this film. Because this is this is a way more nicer building than where they are staying at the moment. And the father never actually breaks the news about this building to the kids. Well, there's a lot of reasons that could go into it. First of all, it could be that it, it, it will be taken into use or somebody will occupy this place very shortly or they already have like a good base somewhere in a less beautiful location, but they are probably going to be not disturbed where they are currently. Then there is, of course, that it seems to me be like that Boromor, the father, wants to be kind of isolated in his own thoughts and spends less and less time with the kids. That he most notably does, and he also spends less and less time with his job. Yep. Yeah, he refuses to quit, and he keeps on carrying the sign, but he ends up wandering into the most curious places with the sign, instead of staying in that one spot where I would believe he has been ordered to stay. So he is still endangering his job, by going into these other buildings in other areas instead of staying in that crossing with the sign. Meanwhile, now the store lady sees the girl again in the store, overlooking her from behind the plastic curtain, which I believe is the freezer probably. And the father is sleeping in the fancy building's bed. Then father is chasing his son to give him the money he holds. Now we get the action scene of this film, so to speak. A riveting suspense. Yes, riveting. What is going on here, Henrik? Your take? My take is that for some odd reason, which I actually don't know why, the son has some money. Where the son would get the money, it's, it's never explained. But one take you could read into the situation is that the son would have taken his father's paycheck. I don't know at what time and what part of this film. And I don't know what the son would have been thinking with, to do with that said paycheck. But but the kids do have some money from some place because they are also because their daughter is also able to purchase the cabbage. Okay, so to me it seems the father unceremoniously takes all the money they have. That he does. That he does. That is something that does happen in the scene. The more the question is, where has that money come from originally? Whose money is it? I would suspect that it's the father's pay that somehow maybe the boy is the one who is holding it for whatever reason. Uh, who knows, once again, but then just he just simply walks off and abandons his family. That's how I take it. This is the moment where he just says, look after your sister and... Keep on going with to your own devices from here on in, hereafter. But however, in the following scene, the kids are clearly in the bed. Well, you can just about see them. At least one of them is. You can see the goddamn hair there. You can see the sheet moving and you can see the hair of the kid while the father is uh, suffocating the cabbage. <laughs> so uh, I, I, I don't know. So uh, apparently the kids are there still. The, the kids are there. 
My my take was that the son was holding the family's money, like you said, for some odd reason, which hasn't been explained, but maybe so that during the daytime when dad is doing his work, the kids have some money to which buy food. Oh. And the dad would take that money from the son and use it to buy booze, to get himself drunk, because to me he appears to be drunk in the following scene. You're right, yeah. Yeah, and then he would return back to the place where they're staying, still drunk, and in that drunken rage, he would actually destroy the daughter's cabbage. Yeah, you're right. Somehow I kind of downplayed or kind of ignored the whole drunkenness aspect at this moment. You're very right. Once again, the film really does not do you any favors in that regard by since it it refuses, it outright refuses to actually explain to you what happens between the scenes. You are shown that the father takes the money, and then you are shown the scene where the dad returns to the kids. You are not shown the father buying alcohol. There is no line of dialogue giving you out that the father has bought alcohol. Mm-hmm. It is simply left for your own interpretation, which you kind of have to make, judging by the expression on the father's face during that extreme close-up and by his actions when he attacks the cabbage. Yeah, indeed, we then get back to bed and he decides to eat first the cabbage doll, then suffocates the cabbage with the pillow. I took this actually as his training attempt to kill his own kids. Your take? I took it that it was simply him venting out his rage and frustration into some inanimate object which he can destroy safely. But with that in mind, I actually do very well see your point of view and it, you could very strongly read it as such that he this is the moment where he's actually contemplating on killing his kids and he's trying to prepare himself to suffocate his own children. Yeah, which is kind of amplified this theory in the following scene in my mind because the family is entering the boat and I would take it that this was his family murder attempt. I don't know how well suffocating kids in the in the boat actually would work but well you know well yeah you you could you could drown them very easily just throw them overboard exactly like is there any other logic for him to take his family on a boat trip in the middle of the night in a pouring rain this would be the great place to where to murder somebody uh, this would this would in that sense the reading that the the father is trying to kill his kids is something that is very strong in these scenes. And that would also very well explain why the woman now finally decides to show herself to the entire family and finally intersect with the proceedings and take part in the family's life. Because now she would somehow piece it together that the father is planning on killing his kids and this would be her preventing it. Yeah, exactly. She was quite furiously taking the children to safety. She, 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 in the end, she even kicks the, the dad in the face to get, get him to remove his grip of her and of the kids. Yeah, in, in many ways, this, that reads as a defensive act and an act to protect the children. Yeah, well, in any case, you have a 
drunken alcoholic guy, a father who is taking his kids to a trip with a boat in the pouring rain in the middle of the night. What could go wrong? So it's good that uh, she turned out. It is. It, it is kind of the heroic moment of this film. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say Star Lady saves the kids' lives, followed by the father visits the store lady's mold home where the kids are now living. Apparently the store lady is not doing much better either, at least if you look at the building. But hey, she's like a stable, balanced-looking individual who is able to also provide some some private schooling, or what seems like that, or helping them with their schoolwork. And she would appear to be a person who has nicer clothes than the actual family. Yeah. Which once, once again would imply that she has at least some kind of a acceptable paycheck. I did notice the North Face jacket that she was wearing when she was in the shop. Yeah. Th- those are not completely cheap. But yeah, they're secondhand and who knows. But father visits the home and uh, there's a birth cake. Father seems to be extremely in an excited mood. He's so sad in every scene. And the father takes a bath. Children doing the schoolwork. Interesting word choices that they are writing in this schoolwork. The girl is going through the words about slapping constantly. <laughs> Could this be kind of a reflection of what they have been experiencing in their life? I hope not. For the father's sake, I also really hope not. Followed by the store lady cleaning up the bathtub, which is probably a pretty good preventive measure to avoid any kind of bugs entering this mold house, but yeah. It is also a good way to get the poor person out of your bathtub. Yeah, like completely. Completely. The father is then eating something that looks like an ice cream and sitting in some kind of massage chair or such. This is a really weird house. It's filled with these expensive devices and... The house is in terrible agony. Um, yeah, and that once again could be one interpretation that you could make about the woman that she is a materialist. And the reason why she has to live in the moldy shithole house is because even though she makes relatively better paycheck than the father of the kids, she spends her paycheck on these expensive luxury items and because of that she doesn't have money for proper housing. (laughs) Then there is the frog story. Quote, the frogs want a king. There are a lot of frogs in a pond, but because they are weak, they are always being mistreated, they ask the fairy to send them a king, so that no one will ever mistreat them again. At midnight they pray to have a king, but all they get sent is a simple stick of wood. The frogs pray again for a king. This time they get sent a crane, which eats them all up. No one protects the frogs. End quote. Do you want to read something into this? It could kind of be how nobody actually protects these low-income homeless persons and members of the society. Where, like, like the frogs, they also are waiting and praying that Someone above them would take notice and do something to help their plight. They would be praying for this king to show up, in a sense. What the society in return gives to them is simply sticks and something that hurts them more than actually helps them. Like the grain to the frogs. Because in the end, if you are outside of the society's boundaries of an acceptance, if you are live 
with a low income, if you don't have a proper home, if you are homeless, the society pretty quickly deems you as an unworthy person and someone who does not deserve protection from the society's end and you are seen more as a parasite. Stray frogs, then. Uh, stray frogs? House is like a person, Henrik. True or false? In a way, it is true. Through symbolism. You can say that houses, especially older houses, they have a life in them. In a way, how this house changes. How those nooks and crannies give away. How that door frame kind of shifts as the years go by. And if you do not take care of the house, if you do not live inside the house, the house actually will go to, go to ruin. And it, like, like the woman here points out, the molding and the water damage to her is the house crying. You can see the symbolism between the water damage and the, and the extreme molding and the house crying because nobody, nobody inhabits it because it has been left alone and there is no one living in, in it and also no one taking care of it. This way kind of uh, tying it down into that like persons need other persons and they, they need this social interaction, they need to coexist with other persons, also the house has to coexist with someone. It has to coexist with with its inhabitant, and if you take that away from the house, the house will get depressed. Well, house has a history, definitely, and house has kind of a memory, sort of like if you would talk about a tree. And so, in that sense, it's a different experience to live in a house that was built during the communism time in Poland than living living there and kind of seeing what life was like and. Then you compare it to a housing from the 2010s and it kind of lacks, lacks soul and a story. In a way, yeah. If you are interested in studying this theme more, there is this India game, of which name I really can't bring to my mind at the moment. But essentially, it is an India horror title that takes place in quote-unquote haunted <clears throat> house. And the point in there... In the end is that the house you are in is is kind of alive and it has some certain of self-awareness. And because the house has repeatedly had inhabitants living in it and then lost those inhabitants as people have moved out of the house. And finally has reached this state where no one has been living in the house for a number of years. The house has kind of gone through emotional abuse through being abandoned repeatedly by people, the people that the house tries to get close to and tries to build a relationship tied to. And because of this, when the game starts, or at the moment of time when, when the game takes place, the house has become benevolent and even psychotic to a point where it actively tries to actually attack the player simply out of this abandonment-led psychopathy that the house now suffers. The game I was talking about is is Anatomy by Indian developer Kitty Horror Show. 
So if if you are interested in in the theme of a living house studied through very ugly India game, I most definitely do recommend checking that one out. I always wanted to try. All right, the father then scares the bejesus out of the store lady. She's collecting the food for the dogs, Henrik, and then we get to the scene of the feeding the dogs for one last time. And at time code 1.52.35, so 1 hour 52 minutes 35 seconds, we get to the last scene and the priest shot starts at 1.52.55, ends at 2 hours 1 minute 45 seconds so this shot is indeed nine minutes of standing and goddamn this first of all is tough on the actors to hold their position for such an extended period of time nothing really happens here it's the father behind the lady just drinking occasionally from the bottle takes about i don't know i lost count six seven eight sips from the bottle, then finally builds the courage to get near the lady, leans on to the lady's shoulder, but she also cries during this scene, and so there's a lot of action happening at the end. <laughs> and um, the shot very much indicates that the lady is not interested definitely to approach the father in any romantic sense, and it's giving the message that the lady is not going to forgive for anything that the father did, which I will still take as the father's murder attempt, which kind of changed the whole situation. Basically, in any case, at the mildest, the father is not taking care of the children in an appropriate way. And also, this scene might just not have anything to do with the father in any way. It just might be that the store lady is standing in front of the mural, as she is, just waiting for nine goddamn minutes, even fucking crying about it, Henrik. She's waiting for him to get the hell out of there, so she can finally have the pee in front of the mural once again. And finally she realizes that she can si simply go to the next room. Yeah, and find the toilet there. Yep. Well, but uh, indeed, this is the last shot then, which lasts five minutes as well, <laughs> from... 2 hours 1 minute 45 seconds to 2 hours 6 minute 55 seconds 5 minutes of basically standing then the father follows the store lady to the same part of the house and and that's the film that it is can you identify any personal struggles maybe yourself like this i i can i i can identify the struggle with having extremely limited income I can relate with that feeling of societal unworthiness and the feeling that the society does not see any merit in your existence. And it's actually kind of a hoping that you would simply go someplace. Nobody is actually stating it out loudly that you should just off yourself, but you should become someone else's problem somehow. And I can I can also identify with the emotional struggle that the dad is going through. This anger that, and depression that is boiling inside of him. And the occasional need to lash out against 
something because there really is no target for anything that you are experiencing but holding those feelings inside of you long enough time give you this compulsive need to somehow manifest that manifest all those negative emotions and their effect on you somehow mm, yeah i like how the film does capture the how the poverty affects you in every single area of life and as mentioned in many moments it does a great job with that by spending a lot of time in that particular shot or moment but it always didn't work so well which kind of i guess leads me to the quick categories favorite performance i would go with kang Xing Li, who played the father in, in in the film he does get a couple of shots most notably the one where he sings the song i think that you know from this group during that one take he actually gives the strongest and most rawest performance of all the actors in this film. Yeah, that could be. That being said, I did also enjoy the child actors, how natural they seem to be in their respective roles. It seemed very believable on their part, and they were the only like positive shining light in this film. So, what the hell, I will just, because you picked uh, already him, I will just go with Lee Yuche, is, I believe, how in which order these goddamn names go. So the girl that played the girl. For example, I remember pretty vividly the moment when she's in the eatery, just watching the other guy eating his noodles, and I kind of felt that. And also the moment when they are playing with the cabbage, Mrs. Big Boobs. Oh, I can see where you're coming from with your big... Well, then we can move on to favorite scene, and the... What's your take? I guess that would be the, fa- uh, the family washing up in the public bathroom. God damn it. Yeah, it is the same for me. Yeah, I kind of did mention that in a way already. So the family brushing their teeth and uh, washing themselves with the help of the father. It also exemplifies well the harrowing circumstances. It does, and like you pointed out, it is one of the more lighthearted scenes. Even though the subject matter it still studies is very hard and extremely difficult. It is. So, favorite quote? I guess I I would take the father's song in its entirety, because you really don't get one line from the lyrics. It is kind of its own complete entity, the song. Okay, well, I'm going with the same one. But from the song, I did pick this line, this quote, When will the grief of the empire's subjects end? End quote. And the answer is when... This movie is over. I may be a little bit harsh, but I will get to my review in a second. So please, please hold the line. Uh, I, I'm taking that you will recommend this movie at the very end of the quickies. Yeah, well, that can be. Um, that that can be an interpretation. Favorite kill? That would be the cabbage, <laughs> Mrs. Big Boobs. <laughs> who does not only get smothered to death, but also cannibalized. <laughs> I don't know why I, did, why I didn't pick that one, but I'm going to be more brutal here. I'm going to... <laughs> Ask of the entire family, because no one can actually survive living in that moldy house. Yeah, my favorite kill is the future of the father. <laughs> <laughs> Him becoming a proper stray dog, along with the actual stray dogs in the stray dog's house. So I hope you're happy with that one. 
and random confusing question for the night is have you ever had the craving of randomly going for a boat trip in the pouring rain after training of choking a cabbage no i i have the craving to go on walk when it's pouring rain and that is without choking the cabbage so we never had a childhood with with the cabbage doll i well it, it is hugely thanks to my parents who really made it sure that they did work their asses off to find whatever means to make it sure that we were never that poor. <clears throat> Did you play with dolls as a kid? Nope, we didn't have those. We, we did have Sega Master System, which I did play quite a lot. Yeah, I did play a little bit with dolls, but I don't know, it wasn't like my main interest to play with as a kid. I would play with... Also toy soldiers, trains, I preferred something less soft and less something that looks like the frog princess. So take whatever you want from that. Something something toxic masculinity. Yeah, and the, and the notion that I did play with dolls, but I did play with a lot of other toys, so I don't know. Were of where, course where it, the dolls too, too soft and too feminine for you? Uh, they were. I I felt that they kind of were. So oh I was, shit me! Yeah, yeah. I, I I guess I was doing the segregation already as a four-year-old. Who would have thought? That that's how the patriarchy gets you. At least I didn't play full time with the dolls. Then I would have obviously become a homosexual. <laughs> <laughs> A close call, but you managed to avoid it. <laughs> um, and with that out of the way, first, the, first to, image to, that, to someone, yeah. to someone, this is going to be the first episode they are ever gonna hear of this podcast, and, <laughs> and they are going to miss all the previous knowledge that have been given out throughout this episode. So they come into that statement completely blind. <laughs> Alright, so first image that comes to mind. I guess that is that shot of the father and the other guy holding the signs. I don't know, I guess the nine minute staring shot at the end. It's hard to wipe out from your memory. Yeah, it, it does leave an expression. Be honest now, did you fast forward this film? <laughs> I did not, I did not yeah. fast forward it. Me neither. The things we do, the things we suffer here. Well, which image best exemplifies this film? I, I would say it's the exact same shot, the dad holding the sign. I would say it's the nine-minute staring shot, in a way. In, in, a, in it, a way, in a way. But, it, it, it does bring forefront the problems, or quote-unquote problems, that this film has. I see what you did there. Of course, the raincoat holding the sign exemplifies the pain in this film much better than two people in a close-up but uh, but yeah as far as the long winding scenes go then i would go with the nine minute staring shot and what took you out the extreme slowness of this film yeah i would say the nine minute staring shot and all the like so basically the same thing what pulled you in kind of a surprisingly nothing really like in a way, I was with the film from the start, and 
In other ways, I was not with the film because of the slowness and because it is... Because the slow pacing makes it kind of hard to watch. But what I Mm. most definitely did not get from this film was that one aha moment that really kind of pulls me into this films into this film. Like that, I would say, was completely lacking here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Already when I saw the first shot of this film with the kids in the bed and the girl in the uh, or the, the store woman in the foreground coming the hair, you know, once that was. Once that had been running for about past the one minute mark, then I was already like, oh, oh no, oh, oh, oh God, uh, here it comes, it's you, Uncle you, Boon me all over again. <laughs> you, and you I was like, oh, sorry, Henrik, sorry. You, Yeah, you do realize where the structure of the film is going from the opening shot, because it takes so long. Yeah, but what pulled me in would be kind of like the small captured moments of feeling their tragedy for example the, our favorite scene or, or shot in the toilet things like that they capture it pretty well and, uh, and extremely well and also the moment when the uh, dad is eating the chicken very thoroughly so yeah we get to the vibe we get to the vibe most exciting moment of this film which there kinda is none like uh... Maybe the boat ride, if if you once again take it as as a child murder thing. Oh yeah, well, yeah. Well, but, but e- e- even that really isn't that exciting. Like e- excitement is extremely lacking in this film. Yeah. Well, there's action, kicking. Store lady does put the shoe to a good use there. One of the most exciting moments is after spending good fourteen minutes with this last freaking shots i don't know it's the when the end credits finally roll or i don't know the scene where the kids play the mrs big boobs because that's the light-hearted moment of the film well 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 <clears throat> looking forward to this one scissors of sacrilege henrik what would you change uh, i don't know I, I i did have a lot of problem with the audio in this film in a sense i i was using using my speaker system to listen to the audio, and it, it might be something that the audio track simply did not work with my speakers. And that might might be a technical difficulty on my end, but I, I did have the problem that the audio with the speech was extremely low when contrasted to the audio of the surrounding landscape, which really did hurt, for example, in the se- sequences when the dad is holding the sign, because... During those scenes, uh, when there was dialogue playing, I kind of had to turn the volume all the way up first to hear the dialogue, and then sound of traffic would come blazing through through my speakers. So I I don't know. I don't know if that's a problem with the film, but if it is, that would be something that I would fix. So you cranked up the volume for the speech parts, so... Yep, I, I, I had to crank it up for the dialogue. Do, so, yeah, this is a revelation, or a revelatia, as we say in Polskaland. So, Henrik apparently does speak Mandarin. Shishi. I, I, even with the, with the subtitles, I still want to actually hear the actors say the words. Yeah, um, I didn't have the problems that you did have with the audio. There is the choice between the 2.0 and 5.1 audio tracks. 
And I believe I took the 2.0 because that would be kind of the proper choice because I have two speakers. Dear listener, if you have any problems that Henrik is describing here, maybe look at the audio track that you're using and your current setup. Yeah, give it a shot. You could might or you might end up saving yourself quite a lot of headache. Well, I don't know with this film, but you really know you're watching Stray Dogs when when killing a cabbage seems so tempting. You really know you're watching the Stray Dogs when you fall fast asleep. Not saying that I did. But uh, I was squirmishing. <laughs> <laughs> I was on the <laughs> sofa and I found myself looking at the screen upside down sometimes because uh, this film really is drawing your patience. That it does. It really does do that. Very strongly with its goddamn pacing. Three adjectives to describe the film. I would say Zen in a positive tone. Zen this time very negatively and depressed. Yeah, I will go a little bit fancy here, but this will describe the film well in my opinion. So it's stultifying, as in like mind-numbingly dull, and it's stupefying. And at the same time, concurrently, concurrently it's cocksure. So it's too damn cocksure about what it's doing, and it think it's doing a great job, and then ends up kind of winding at the shit house at some points of the film. Did you look at your watch? Uh, I did after the first hour. Like, I, I, I did fight against the urge to start checking my watch for the first hour of the film, but after, you know, hour into the film, at which time we had had, what, from 7 to 10 scenes, I really did start to actually check my watch and see how much I still had to go. So you found the clock hands of your watch more interesting and having more action than this film? That kind of is, yeah, that, that is the point. At least they were constantly moving, unlike the shots in this film. Right. Yeah, I found myself watching my watch constantly because of all the aforementioned reasons this this film is... I don't know, maybe we should also point out the fact that we are not watching this in a cinema. And in a cinema, I think this type of film has the best possible effect. Yeah, the film would benefit from a cinema showing and you seeing it on the big screen in a darkened room with a good audio. Yeah. It, it, it would benefit the film, but I say that it would not save you from the troubles that the pacing does give you. Like, if you have a problem how the scenes, how the film progresses and how long the scenes takes to play out, if you have that problem now with, with the DVD, I would say that even though the experience might be a bit more better if seeing this in cinema, you would still have the same problems. It would be easier to concentrate on the film at hand with the audience and the full focus on the film at hand. But at the same time, concurrently, this film is able to take you into its little world and then it also is not able to do that so, that so strongly. And I would blame the cinematography at some points. Because you really have to blow my fucking head off. like Blow my freaking mind if you want to hold my attention to a shot for nine minutes. 
and which is exactly the opposite that this nine minutes sh- shot does it's there's nothing really interesting going on but yeah henrik would you recommend stray dogs that actually is quite a difficult question you're kidding me i'm not i'm not like we both experience the same problems which is the pacing of this film and the fact that one shot can take seven years but at at the same time i didn't hate it as strongly as you did it, no, it no, most no. definitely is an artistic choice like th- this is like said in the beginning of this episode to me this read like a zen filmmaking an attempt to combine zen philosophy and filmmaking and th- this is the reading uh, that is highlighted for me from understanding that the director's other film Journey to the West would simply be shots of this Buddhist monk walking extremely slowly through each shot. Like from one end of the frame to another end of the frame. And so so that kind of a gives me more of the reading that what was done in Stray Dogs was done in purpose and was done in the name of Zen. In a way, I found it kind of a poetic in the end i i might not exactly like it but i did find some poetry in the way how how the scenes lasted and how the movie worked how it took its time and slowly crawled past you and i mm. did find something in there and i did think that when it comes to dealing with institutionalized poverty and poverty as a member of an institution it does shine a good light into that. Even though it takes fucking nine decades for the film to end, and even though it does hit you in the head repeatedly with the, with its point, it still does show you different aspects of poverty. It does give you a good glimpse inside of the extreme anguish and the... Uh, this almost suicidal, almost violent depression that you can get into when you have to live in a poverty, in a system that really does not support that in any way, that treats you with hostility and how that hostility might affect you. And I I see merit in there. I see merit in the film's message and I see merit how the film progresses. I see the merit in, in that forever taking shots structure that this film has and in that sense yeah i i would kind of even recommend this film but the problem comes for the fact that even with all this behind it the film is excruciatingly slow to watch and it it like said it takes fucking forever and that makes this also movie that is very artistic has something really strong to say does not manage to say it perfectly and fumbles with its message kind of throughout the film and also is a film that you very well might end up hating. And it it kind of leaves me into this problematic space where if you check this film out, I, I say that you, you might gain something for it. And seeing the film is not a bad thing. Like, if you somehow come in contact with the film, good for you. Hopefully it worked for you. At least you saw something that you typically wouldn't see. 
necessarily. But at the same time, you know, I guess I can't recommend looking up this film, you know, searching for this film and seeing it. Because the odds are that most likely you are not going to like the film. So that kind of brings the inadequacies of our, would you recommend this film when you put it in vis-a-vis the fact if you actually like this film. So did you like the film then? I, I guess I liked it more, even with all its problems, even if I fought to actually sit through this film and not, you know, push fast forward button. I guess I did, in a way, like the film. And I did like it more than I would recommend it. This is kind of a reverse situation from the Inuk episode where I've ended up recommending the film more than I liked it. And with that, I'm well aware that, you know, when it comes to liking this film, I am most likely in the minority, but I'm kind of okay with that. Hmm. I was kind of expecting very balanced and not very heated review from you, and that's exactly what came forward here. Because this is definitely the kind of film that can inflame you completely. You come on a ranty rage into this podcast and say that this is the... This is not the film for the ages, this is just taking ages. But uh, for me, at least li- right now, it's just not engaging enough that it would merit a nine-minute shot where close to nothing at all happens. Its cinematography is too sure of itself, like kind of cocksure, as said. And they believe they can pull off these scenes constantly that keep on going for what seems like an eternity. And this trick did work to an extent in Uncle Boon Me, actually for a lot of the uh, for a lot of the part in that film, in my opinion, because the film had a structure, uh, like a story to tell clearly, which is the case here too, but in a different way. I feel that with Stray Dogs, it's like it has a structure, but it's more winding, and what it tries to do is perhaps too obvious within the first act or the first hour of the film, where several scenes of Uncle Boon Me give you room for different types of pondering and interpretation. But as we have seen throughout when talking these scenes through in these episodes, there is quite a lot that you can interpret differently, in a sense. But when it comes to this poor family aspect, that doesn't give a lot of wiggle room. It is what it is, and it keeps hitting you in the head with that point over and over. But it's an extremely valuable story to tell. And... Many of the scenes here in Stray Dogs do give the proper effect exactly because they are so insanely drawn out. But yeah, it brings you closer to their experience and closer to the world of the film. And sometimes it doesn't because you wake up from the spell of the film going like, oh, I see what you're doing here. So why is it necessary to keep it on my face for five minutes kind of thing? And for a lot of the time, I feel it's also working. As, as, as somebody mentioned in the IMDb reviews, I do agree 100% that the story is a good one, and it could be even a very powerful one if we just cut the length of the shots and do like a 80% shorter film. Like a short film. And in fact, the director has done a lot of short films, and the concept here appears to be fitting for one. I don't see why you'd need to drag this story out to uh, is it like 2 hours 12 minutes? It's just maddening audience torture, especially if you don't even plan to have a ridiculously interesting shots all the time. But don't get me wrong, there's a lot of great cinematography, of course, here, but again, 
uh, it doesn't hold us in its world with this much drag uh, when it comes to Uncle Boo and Me. This film lacks self-consciousness in the sense that it's too sure of its pacing, the story is simple and we can get into the mood in a shorter time than this film's makers seem to think. So the film also lacks proper like a point of support, like a fulcrum and character development. And you could even take it as a kind of an insult to every stray dog's feelings. But because it's doing this juxtaposition with the name to people, or that's how I take it. With all that said, though, it could be that this is one of those films that grows on you after repeated viewings, after you have kind of marinated in your brain the shots and the scenes in your head over and over. And I might even pick it up later on, who knows? There are things that I liked here and things that I didn't like. And at the end of the day, it goes more in the direction of what I didn't like about this film. So it would be a non-recommendation from me. Yeah, I I too, I, I don't see myself returning to this film anytime soon. Yeah. Like the fight you had to go with the film already to see it for this episode was most definitely enough for me for quite some time. And I'm not really, I'm not waiting for the moment in some foreseen future when I would actually revisit this film and watch it again. Because the pacing really is... It takes fucking ages. And li- like you kind of pointed out with, with the short films, this is a short film... Track to two hours. ...amount of of narrative material yep. in a in an over two-hour film. And even, even with that, that narrative material doesn't really communicate in a way that it would give you a clear picture of what is happening as evident from all the different readings that we have brought up during this episode and different readings on what happens on individual scenes even and what you said about comparing this to Uncle Poonmei yeah this this does do kind of the same trick same narrative decisions that Poonmei did but Uncle Poonmei was not as extreme with its decisions. It was not as, as extreme on how little happens in one scene and how long that scene takes. And in that in that sense, even though if the symbolism was more obvious here, and this was not as hard to decipher as was Uncle Poonmei, Uncle Poonmei was an easier watch. Than stray dogs, most definitely. But there is the story that a guy, probably a Finnish company, where a guy was scratching uh, the ketchup bottle in his kitchen or in his house, and it he kind of found this exercise a very meditative one. And during this meditative, long-winded scratching of the ketchup bottle out of its dried-up ketchup, he got the idea to create his dream company with which he made a hell of a lot of money and perhaps is still today doing. Bringing me to the point, well, there is definitely something these meditative state films. And if I ever would be so generous to return to Stray Dogs, then it would definitely require this certain state of mind where it would probably come to question if you would meditate for a goddamn hour 
then watch this film. The film would have your complete and other attention, and you would find the most intriguing things about somebody eating a chicken for five minutes. Or vice versa, you could try to use this film as a way to get into a meditative state, like you would you would start watching this in order to for the slow pacing to numb you into the point where you actually sleep into the meditative state of mind, but at the same time it kind of begs the question that should you actually do that? Would that be doing a disservice to the film because at that point you no longer would be actually paying attention and following the film itself? Well, no, not that kind of meditative state. The, the, the meditative state the, or the meditation which uh, gives you a better ability to concentrate to one subject matter or one discussion for extended periods of times, for example. Whatever the task ahead it might be. If you give that kind of attention to this film, then you might even be 100% with it for the 2 hours and 12 minutes that it runs. Because the film is about poverty, yeah. And it's a meditative film about poverty, okay. But if you reach this state where you are giving your full concentration of this film, would that also be a disservice to this film? Because the film is trying to tell you about how terrible it is and how frustrating it is to be in poverty. And then you would reach this different kind of stage where you'd you'd be more able to handle the frustrating moment much better than the characters in the film, for sure. So I don't know what you would gain with that. I don't know what's the director's intention anyway. Is he trying to drive us nuts with the boredom here with the characters? Maybe, maybe that could be. It could be kind of a... And I'm not drawing comparisons between the movies here, per se. But it could be kind of a similar type of situation that was, for example, in the Nazi propaganda film Triumph of the Will, which also has shots that last for fucking decades, and which, because of this, actually becomes boring and even numbing for the audience member to watch. Also, in Triumph of the Will's case, that kind of was the point of the film. Like, the film wants to achieve that effect in order to highlight the over-encompassing massiveness of the Nazi army. To give you the point that even this small glimpse, even this fracture of showing you the size of the Nazi army, it takes so goddamn long that you will get bored only by this small glimpse. So just imagine how massive the army is in its entirety how over-encompassingly great force it is. Stray Dogs could be kind of trying to achieve similar type of an effect, but now highlighting the poverty. See how extremely numbing and life-draining experience it is to live in constant poverty which you can't escape. To live from day to day, just tracking on the same exact day, because you have no escape at all from the situation you are in. And that it really does drives home that point very well. When preparing for this episode, I did read about actual stray dogs. And in fact, the EU estimates that within the member states of EU, there are over a hundred million abandoned companion animals. But they are not seen as companion animals, they are 
are seen as pests and mistreated every single day, especially in states like Bulgaria, Greece, Hungary, Poland, and uh, Spain, and list goes on. To get a picture of what is happening and what can be done, I can recommend reading about it. There's this resource called European Society of Dog and Animal Welfare, or SDAO. So maybe check it out. If you want to grow, keep on growing your harrowing feelings at this hour. Well, that was Stray Dogs in this podcast, and you can find us and this podcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Choose your own hell. The International Cinema Challenge is still running, so that means in this year, 2019, we will watch 20 films in this podcast, all from 20 different countries. We started in the beginning of the year, and this will last throughout the year. At the end of the year, or January 2020, we will happily invite into our show as a guest someone who has actually put on the effort and watched all these 20 films with us. But fear not, dear listener, if you don't want to listen to or see all of these films that we have picked for you, the list you can find out on, on in our social medias, you can also, in that case, watch any films that are from 20 different countries. So good luck with that. That's actually going to be a bit of a challenge, I would say, on its own. You know, there are not too many big film-making countries of which you could actually find, like, movies to select from in Finland, for example. 20 really is kind of a challenge. It is even for us on this podcast. It is, in many ways. Yeah, and we, we are the wackos who actually came up with the whole challenge thing, so... <laughs> I, I, can, I can only imagine why this is for someone else who decides to go their own route and not follow our list of films. Yep, better to give the wiggle room. But Henrik, what is our next film? Are we going to look at the... Ha-chubenga, chapari, chaparu. So that means the Lion King. Oh, Kimba the White Lion. Which one is it? They are technically eh... the same film. Yeah, it, it depends on your looking glass, but it has the title The Lion King, made in 94. And uh, soon the re- live-action remake is going to come out. And... We... We are extremely looking forward to it, as that's why we are going to watch the original. Well, and in most likelihood, we will not touch the remake in any way. So... Try, try me, Disney. Try me. Try to impress me and make your remake to be even more better than the original Lion King. Just, just try me. It's gonna be Disney fused with Shakespeare. So, until next week. <laughs> until next week. Thank you.